Hi, I'm Tom Power. Welcome to Toy Heart, a podcast about bluegrass. This is the last episode of season two here from Nashville is my conversation with Allison Krauss. I remember, you know, the first time I looked out in the audience and saw people singing words to our songs that only we had recorded. That was just a really crazy moment. Just never thought it would end up being there. Never thought we'd hear back from Rounder. Yeah. Never thought we would hear from Rounder in the first place. If this is your first time listening, you can hear full interviews with Jerry Douglas, Allison Brown, Bela Fleck, Larry Sparks, Jody Stecker, and so many more wherever you get your podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Later on. Well, hello, and welcome to Basic Folk. This is a podcast where we have honest conversations with folk musicians. I'm your host, Cindy House, and before we get to business today, Black Lives Matter. We stand with Black communities against all forms of racism, bigotry, and violence. We will work to do what we can to make meaningful change in our community for both now and in the future. We're working on a project that hopes to move things forward, open some minds, uh, and I'm excited to share some information about that when the time comes. Another exciting announcement is that we have just joined a brand new podcast network. We're excited to be a part of the American Songwriter Podcast Network. The announcement was just made this week. We joined their very fine lineup in this brand new venture for the publication and for us and excited to see what the future holds with the American Songwriter Podcast Network. Thanks so much to Dan Wise for helping us set up in the new network. Oh, and if you hear any meows, Dottie the cat is in my studio with me in her cat bag. It's kind of a long story, um, but she is very unhappy. So you may hear some meows or scratches during this intro. I think there was one just there. Anyways, today on the podcast, I am happy to welcome Alice Howe. Alice Howe's vibe is like Jackson Brown and Bonnie Raitt, but also like Joan Baez and Old English Ballads. Her musical life was changed in 2016 when she met the musician Freebo, the legendary singer-songwriter and musician who's played with Bonnie Raitt. He played with uh, her for 10 years, and he's also played with people like Crosby, Stills, and Nash, Maria Muldar, Kate and Anna McGarrigal, and a lot of other people. Freebo and Alice instantly connected through music, and their collaboration has led to many shows together and the production of her debut album, Visions. We talked about their musical partnership as well as Alice's family. Her dad was a very talented painter turned architect, he died when Alice was 18, and she talked about his influence on her art, music, and life outlook. After graduating from Smith College, she moved to Seattle and worked at a guitar shop, learning priceless information about instruments, gear, and life in general. Now living in Los Angeles, Alice is in the middle of working on a project at Fame Studios in Muscle Shoals, Alabama. We also get some info about that. I really enjoyed getting to know Alice. We actually didn't know each other before quarantine. Before this interview, we actually coincidentally worked together on troubleshooting live streaming shows, which was very stressful and frustrating, 
and a fast way to make a good friend or a lifelong enemy. I think Alice and I are going to be friends for a long time. Hope you enjoy getting to know this person. I think she's awesome. Alice Howe. We're going to listen to a clip from her album Visions. This is Twilight, and then we'll get to our conversation with Alice Howe on Basic Folk. Gathering pools, there are trees to the right, twisted and wild. To my left is the sea, like a glimmering eye. But well, I'm not the first one, and I won't be the last who's come to this crossroads and breezed on past. With my destination, my only concern. One foot on the gas as the yellow light turns. You ready, Alice, for some invasive questions? Oh my god, I'm scared. <laughs> well, here we go. <laughs> <laughs> um, thanks for doing this. It's nice to have you on the show. It's great to be here, Cindy. Thanks for having me. You're from Newton, Massachusetts, and you went to the same elementary school as your mom, and you even grew up in the same house as she did. You were surrounded by art and music. Can you talk about the impact your family had on how you came to appreciate art? Yes. Um, I would say that the way I was raised and the environment in my household was hugely influential for me as an artist and just gave me the space to explore and and become the singer and songwriter that I've really always been. Um, my, my father was a painter when he was a young man. He was uh, a f- student of fine art and he all of his paintings were up in the house and um, while he went on to become an architect and and wasn't you know an artist, per se, uh, he was a really artistic soul and a creative person and was always, you know, sharing that side of himself in, in a lot of different ways. And my mom um, is, is a more left brain person. She's uh, a doctor and she's always had a, a really deep love of music and, and the blues and, and folk music and Joan Baez. And so she would be playing records all the time. Um, and so together, I think they both just offered two really beautiful different sides of how one can be creative um, and enjoy art. And my mom's also a really creative gardener and kind of expresses that side of herself outside. Oh, cool. Um, yeah. And so, and my brother, my older brother is nine years older than me and he, he played guitar and um, I always wanted to be like him. So I, I picked up the guitar when I was 12 because I'd seen him playing and I, I figured out that it was, it was what I wanted to do also. Mm-hmm. So I think, you know, just, just growing up in that, that immediate family and, and also having my grandmother next door and, and it's my grandmother's house that my mom grew up in and that I spent a lot of time in growing up too. And um, so there was just a connection to different generations. And, and so older music was very much alive. And mm-hmm. um, so I think, all of that really formed me. I was always the baby by a lot, so I was around a lot of older people, and um, and I think that just it. I was always drawn to the music that 
my parents grew up with and that they knew as, as you know, in their youth. And, and so that's, yeah, that's a huge part of, of my shaping my artistic formation. <laughs> yeah, that's interesting being around so many older people all the time. In reading about, you know, what you were listening to when you were younger, you were listening to like, Taj Mahal and Joan Baez and Jackson Brown. And so kids at school would ask you, like, do you like Backstreet Boys or NSYNC? And you're like, I like Joan Baez. <laughs> yes. Did you have a hard time relating to kids your own age? That's such a funny question and good for you for for knowing that little piece of my history. Um, yes, the neighbor girl did ask me that, and and she was very confused by my answer, understandably so. And I do remember also bringing in uh, <laughs> in one of my grade school classrooms we had a teacher who, during a free kind of study period, would let a student bring in a CD that they liked. And so I brought in Tracy Chapman's new album. And everyone was like, what? Who's this, this middle-aged lady? <laughs> yeah, they were like, what, what is this? Where did you find this? Um, so I think there was definitely, uh, I felt different in that way, but I, it didn't, didn't feel like a, a big divide with my peers. I always, mm. I had a really tight group of friends growing up and, you know, my best friend lived down the street and it was just something that I think I always felt really sure was, was my taste and, and that's fine. Mm. <laughs> and I think yeah. I was encouraged to maybe think outside the box by, by my family and to not have to have conventional taste, which I think was, um, you know, I'm really grateful to them for that also. So it sounds like it wasn't so important for you to fit in and you had a real sense of yourself at an early age. Yeah, I'd say that's true. I I I also grew up going to this really wonderful uh, summer camp in Vermont that's called Farm and Wilderness. <laughs> and oh, I uh, love talking about summer camp. Yeah, so huge, huge part of my formation as a person was also going there. And it, it happens to be this camp where uh, it's been there since the, I want to say the 1930s. Um, and it's a Quaker camp. And my parents actually met there when they were 14. And my brother and I both went. And so it's kind of a family tradition. And it's a really very free place. We we used to jokingly refer to it as hippie camp when I was little to my <laughs> friends, because that was the only <laughs> way to describe it. <laughs> um, but it was just a place where there was a lot of music and there was a lot of um, body positivity and, you know, just being very free. And, and I went there from when I was 11 years old until I was uh, 17. So it was just, and I would go for four or eight weeks. So it, it really formed um, a huge part of my independence and just mm. feeling like there was a place for me and I had, you know, this kind of special little world. Um, so yeah, I think I I like anybody I was concerned about fitting into. I don't think anyone escapes that. I I wanted to you know, some part of you always wants to be accepted by mm. everybody, but I did I did kind of have a strong sense of myself, yeah. yeah. It seemed like there's a, a a duality going on where you're proud to be an individual, but you also want to fit in. Which Yeah. Is, Maybe that's seems... in my astrological chart. Yeah, <laughs> I think I think I you know, it's not about it's like, I've always been somebody who wants, you know, for better or worse, wants everybody around me to be happy, and wants uh, to try to make people feel comfortable. So 
you know, I want to be myself, but I don't want to like impose myself <laughs> on you to the right. point where you're not comfortable, you know? So there's some balance there, I guess. I try to find wow. that balance. <laughs> on first latching onto music, you, uh, I read, found this quote where you said, I remember being fixated on the lyrics from artists like Jackson Brown and Joni Mitchell. I was listening to Joan Baez and to the stories being told in old English ballads. Why do you think the lyrics were hitting you so deeply and what did you and what do you like about storytelling through songs? Hmm. Yeah, I just always was very focused on the voice in music. I know a lot of people, we all hear different things. Um, I know people who, you know, they hear the bass line or they hear the drummer or, you know, the chord changes. And for me, that was just always the the singing voice was the most expressive and kind of vulnerable part of it that I just was really hooked into. And that also means, of course, listening to the lyrics. Um, you know, I think to me, they were almost like fairy tales. Like I think fairy tales have a, a lot of times a really deep lesson. And so those old English ballads, uh, you know, there's some pretty heavy stories in them. A lot of them are about, you know, murder and women being having children, you know, and not being wed and like all these <laughs> pretty like adult concepts that I was always really like, I remember asking my mom, what is that about? And, um, you know, her telling me. So I just and, and then moving on to some of the singer songwriters, I just always felt like they were really sharing, you know, some deep part of their heart and soul. And that just really appealed to me that that expression of of just really um, sharing your story and having it be universal and personal at the same time mm -hmm. is just really compelling to me. I can relate to your um, experience with music lessons. Uh, when you were younger, you started with the piano, which you did not like. And then you moved to the clarinet, and this is awesome. You said, I picked the clarinet because I was told my great-great-grandfather played the clarinet in the Tsar's army in Russia. It's true. Wow. Oh, my God. I know. It's too much. And then you switched to the bass clarinet, which sounds like you kind of liked, but it seems as though like I was terrible at it. Right. Like practicing music and music lessons were not your favorite thing. How do you reflect back on your musicality at that point in your life? And do you recognize any of those attributes in the musician you are today? Oh, yeah, definitely. I, <laughs> I, I didn't want, I think <laughs> my problem with, with my early music lessons was just that I didn't want to practice. I think you, you really have to put the time in to you have to put in your thousand hours to be really good at anything and and what I wanted to do was sing so obviously the clarinet <laughs> doesn't lend itself to singing <laughs> so much and uh, the piano I think I was just I wasn't ready to be committed you know and by the time I got around to the guitar I had figured out that 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 was probably the most versatile instrument um, with with which I could accompany my voice, because I think my voice was always my primary instrument and how I felt that I could express myself. And that's, I think it's funny, that's been almost like a double-edged sword for me, because, you know, you, you do what 
you're good at, I think on some level, like you want to just do what's easier. And, and for me, that's singing. So I've had to really um, struggle to make myself become a proficient and a better guitar player. And that's, Mm -hmm. that's stayed with me. So today, you know, it's the same as when I was 10 years old with having kind of fighting with myself, like you need to practice more guitar, because you're not going to be able to do the things that you want to be able to do with your voice and support yourself as a guitarist, unless you kind of bring that up to speed. So it's been a, it's a lifelong thing. I, I don't think I'll mm-hmm. ever be like, there's no there there with with guitar playing for me or with singing. And I'm I'm getting better all the time. I think it's just I think you have to remember to to just focus on the process. How did becoming a better guitar player change your singing voice? Mm. I so I began taking lessons when I was about 12 years old and uh, my first teacher who I was with for a long time, he was really wonderful about just getting me to learn some of the basic blues and like country blues, Mississippi John Hurt tunes, you know, things that really develop like a strong um, right hand finger picking pattern. That's been um, really a huge part of my style, my guitar playing style. But now I've had to you know, move past that basic first level where like, I get to a point sometimes in my songwriting, where I feel that my skills as a guitar player are not matching like, all that I want to do, and that I feel I'm capable of as a singer, like I have melodic ideas, but I don't always know how to translate them to the guitar. So, you know, a couple things that have helped me a lot have been working with other people like writing with other people. And, you know, working with Freebo has been great. And he and I have written um, a number of songs together where I will write the melody and a lot of the lyrics, and then I'll bring it to him and he'll have some, um, you know, instrumental ideas that have helped me kind of branch out. So it's a work in progress. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Not only were you influenced at a young age by music and art, but nature played a big role in your life. Um, Can you describe your connection to nature and what inspired that connection? Yeah. So I I just feel that I was really fortunate to to spend a lot of time outside, whether it was at summer camp, (laughs) um, your favorite topic, or or, um, at our family's little cabin up in Vermont where my great great uncle built this place um, about 100 years ago that has no electricity. And I would go up there with my dad and, and I, I spent a lot of time just by myself outside. And, you know, I was encouraged to um, amuse myself, like my brother was nine years older than me. So I had to play by myself sometimes. And that was, I think, something that gave me time to maybe sing to myself or write about how I felt. Um, And that became a really, that connection to me of being out in nature, being alone, having space to sing or whatever, where nobody can hear you, and then feeling inspired by that. I just always felt that that was really important for me as an artist. Uh, is it okay to talk about your dad died in 2009? Is it okay to ask a few questions? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I yeah. love talking about him. 
So he was a very talented painter turned architect. What was his name again? His name was Sandy. Sandy. Sandy Howe. Right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, in reading about him, I saw a comment that he brought a unique combination of creativity and vitality to like everything that he did, including parenting. In what ways did you see your dad use his creativity when it came to parenting? Um, right away, something that comes to mind, um, and one of my fondest memories of my time with him is just uh, these stories that he would tell, and he would just make up as he went along. And uh, he just had a way of, you know, kind of ad-libbing and not ever... Uh, questioning like the next kind of just free free form thinking and saying whatever <laughs> came to mind um and they were very funny and creative and sort of fantastic and they always involved me being the main character and i just remember being up at the cabin with him and it would be just the two of us and we'd be you know lying in bed and he would be telling me a story um as i would fall asleep and and it was just always, it's amazing looking back at what he was coming up with because it was pretty wild stuff um, and so many different characters and just like about going on adventures in the woods and stuff like that. And, you know, he just he just always encouraged me to, to have a voice, I'd say, whether that was singing or, um, you know, in, in, in school or, you know, in an academic sense or, you know, he just... He was a he was a really unique guy. There's there's never been a, somebody like him that I've found. Mm. <laughs> I'm really lucky to have had him for 18 years because um, mm. he really is a huge part of who I am. Yeah, he sounds like an extraordinary person. Mm -hmm. um, I also read when it came to his painting, um, his work was full of tension, emotion, and sometimes a touch of sarcasm and sometimes a little humor which I'm wondering how you see your own art and your own self in those terms. Mm. Give me that list again. <laughs> <laughs> Tension, emotion, <laughs> sarcasm, humor. <laughs> I feel like that defines my personality. <laughs> I feel like that's not musical. That's just like my emotional state. Um, I think that, you know, the humor and the little bit of sarcasm and the tension and release is is totally me and that's interesting I, I wonder where you read that because I, I find that my sense of humor is is definitely gotten me through um you know whatever challenges I've faced in my life and um and my music has gotten me through that as well um mm -hmm. I've turned to my music and it's it's been the thing that's allowed me to express myself really honestly and has gotten me through things like you know having lost my father at a young age and i feel like my songs are a record of that and a record of him and his life and my life and so looking back at them and listening to them you know even my really early stuff um i feel really fortunate that i have that record of of myself and mm. so yeah i think um his his work definitely from his younger days. Uh, I, for example, I remember one of my favorites is a, a portrait of my uncle uh, with the head of a cat, just 
that and it's and we call it the cat man and it's just like this guy with a cat head and it's like very realistic and really weird and cool and to me that just about sums it up I think (laughs) (laughs) all right I got one more question about your dad uh, in the last few months of his life it seems like he was working on all these projects to benefit his family around the home What do you remember from that time of those projects? And I'm wondering, what does all that planning say to you about your dad? Mm. Well, that's a really beautiful question. And in the last year before he died, we actually moved from the house that I grew up in as a child to my mother's childhood home, as you mentioned earlier, where she still lives now. And it's, um, it's in Newton. And so my dad really like facilitated that and and wanted my mom to be in this house that was really, really special for her and her family um, after her mother died. So uh, that was like his final act for her. Um, And then he was also planning this renovation of the kitchen. um, And as an architect, that, that was actually the first project that he ever did, as I recall, in our home. And he had the kind of career where he traveled the world, you know, he designed a lot of um, academic buildings like libraries and and science buildings for universities. But so he's kind of bigger scale stuff. Um, So this was a very small, very intimate project that he had um, in the works. And I just remember him furiously completing these drawings. I mean, he because he drew everything by hand. And he would like work late into the night. And I think there was a sense for him that it was like the time was limited. So he had to finish this plan for us. And he actually died before we did it, but we did it after he died. And so the kitchen is um, really this almost like my mom treats it almost like an altar to him. It's this really beautiful room and has a lot of windows that look out at the yard and it's just, it became this space that, that he created for us kind of after the fact posthumously, um, which is really cool. And yeah, I just, it, I think it, I feel very lucky. I, this isn't really what you asked, but to be able to experience the end of somebody's life is something that I feel really fortunate to have been able Mm. to be a part of because it's like, it's like being born, but in reverse. Mm. And, and he was, you know, one of the closest people to me. So to be able to be there for that. And I did get to spend a lot of time with him. Um, and just, yeah, it was, it was, he, he moved on from this world very elegantly, um, and with a lot of grace and dignity. So, wow. Yeah. That must've changed your perspective on death quite a bit. I would say it changed my perspective on everything. <laughs> yeah, but yeah. <laughs> but um yeah, and and I give you credit for asking about it cuz a lot of times people think you, you know, you don't want to talk about it, but it's I think it's actually the opposite. I think people do want to talk about people that died and it's mm. good to go there. Yeah. It's such a like a sensitive subject that like nobody really wants to be reminded of death. Yeah. But it's part of everybody's yeah experience oh yeah and i mean just i mean he he got to die at home and i think that that's 
and we were all we all got to be there with him and I think that's really that's like one of the greatest honors of my life honestly You went to Smith College and majored in medieval European history. Uh-oh. Which is very interesting. No question. <laughs> just just commenting. Uh, after college, I know we're skipping ahead quite a bit, but you moved to Seattle and you started playing music more and working at a guitar shop called Dusty Springs, where you must have learned so much while you were there. What was it like for you as a woman to work in a music store where traditionally that has been like a male-centric space? That's a great question. And the store, it's actually called Dusty Strings, just to clarify. Oh, what did I say? You said Springs, like Springfield, which is totally fine. Like that used to happen at the shop like 10 times a day. So I wrote Strings. <laughs> I don't know why I said that. <laughs> Probably because I want to say Dusty Springfield. I know. That's that's, that's totally it. understandable. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, my experience working at Dusty Strings was just so important for my gaining the confidence that I have uh, to talk about guitars, to talk about music, instruments. I think all of that that kind of gear talk feels very male, and it always did for me. I was not knowledgeable about my guitar before I worked there. Like I, I didn't know what type it was. I knew it was a Martin. That's literally all I knew. And being in this <laughs> shop that was actually uh, a very supportive environment for somebody like me to be a young woman working at a guitar store, you could not ever find a better one. Um, just the staff that that was there, male and female, was totally... Uh, all about educating me to where I could be, you know, able to have a conversation about gear with any older male who might come through the doors and expect me to not know what I was talking about, which was very common. And honestly, coming from Smith, where I was surrounded by women all the time, I used to joke that it was a good kind of second education for me, hmm. because it forced me to take what I had learned about being uh, empowered and and speaking for myself, which I'd learned in college and throughout my life, but to actually put that in practice uh, in the world was was really good for me. Yeah. <laughs> it, it it made me hold my ground and and I got to do a lot of really cool things. I mean, I, I learned so much about instruments. I, I was at the point where I was selling, you know, four thousand dollar guitars to uh, older men, which is like the ultimate victory <laughs> where you can be like, no, I know what I'm talking about. And you can trust me to the point where you want to actually give me your credit card. So that was always <laughs> very cool. Um, and I bought my guitar there, which I adore. And, you know, I got to lead a weekly sing along. And that was that was very cool for me, too. So I'm, cool. I'm grateful for that time. Yeah. You eventually moved back to Boston and started going to folk music conferences, and you met Freebo in 2016 at one of those conferences. Freebo is your producer and frequent collaborator, a legendary musician who's played bass with Bonnie Raitt. Um, for many years, he played with Bonnie and collaborated with some of the most famous folk musicians in history. So 
I'm wondering how much does it mean to you that Freebo comes from the exact era of music that you grew up with from the 60s and 70s? And how do you think that comes into play with your work and your connection? Yeah, I think uh, it's there are there are moments of of call it destiny or great importance in in life and and there have been many of those in mine and this was absolutely one of them where meeting him uh gave me an opportunity to really um experience uh and explore just so much of my musicality that I hadn't even had an opportunity to get to previously, not having had uh, any mentors for an extended period of time, like musical mentors. I'd had different people, teachers who'd come into my life, but Freebo was the first person who I would say really saw my talent and my creativity and said, what if we took this and kind of what if I gave you all these new ideas and we worked together and created something that, you know, we could both be really proud of. So that, that sustained kind of mentorship, almost like apprenticeship that I've had with him Mm -hmm. um, has been just has, has kind of like blown it all wide open for me. Like I, I honestly can't like overstate the importance of that. And also his connection to this time and music that, I've always felt really connected to on a personal level. Anyway, the fact that he's basically like an emissary from that time (laughs) is, has been just really powerful for me. It's, it's allowed me to access something that, uh, you know, I kind of felt was in me, but uh, didn't know the people that could kind of help me, for example, create this record that we made together. Uh, Musically is, is so much what I wanted to do all along, but just as a solo singer songwriter with a guitar, it's, you know, you don't have a, I didn't never had a band. I never had somebody kind of helping me craft the arrangements and yeah. So, so the people that he's brought into my life have, have really, really expanded Mm. my, my artistic expression. In talking about you as a song interpreter, the album Visions, which is your debut album, contains a handful of cover songs. And this approach to me is more reminiscent of like Bonnie Raitt's style of interpreting songs and making them her own versus just covering a song. Can you talk about that practice? Hmm. Thank you. and it's interesting, it was not something that I set out to do with this record. I I always thought of myself first and foremost as a singer-songwriter. And actually through the process of recording this album, uh, which really happened over, over the course of almost a year and a half, it was not um, kind of a go in for a week, bang it out, done. Like it, it was when I met Freebo at uh, Folk Alliance conference, I didn't know that I was ready to record a record. So it was a very organic process of kind of picking songs and thinking about it and going home and listening and, you know, kind of going back and forth because I was you flying like, out. You weren't on a deadline or anything. There like was that. no deadline. It was, you know, up to me, up to us, what, what the schedule was. And, and that really gave me a lot of flexibility. And as it went on, I was discovering, you know, yes, I want to do my original songs, but I'm also really excited to show 
different parts of my voice and different parts of uh, myself as a singer that I can't show in my original songs because I think I write a certain way and you know I I'm exploring that and it's it's always changing but there's definitely like a comfortable place for me as a writer and then singing a song like Muddy Waters Honeybee is just going to take me to a whole different place um, and I really really enjoyed just getting to kind of be somebody else with my voice um, mm. there's there's an element of acting there's an element of just um letting go of yourself and and exploring and I, I just learned so much about my own voice and my own capacity through that experience mm. so a couple things about working with Freebo that kind of made you nervous or um just uncertain about what how it was going to go one would be co-writing songs with Freebo which was a very private thing for you before that and then also um I read that you were nervous about what it was going to be like working with the band that he was putting together for your record. How has working with Freebo changed your perspective on trust? Mm. Wow. And yes, you're right. At first, I did have some trepidation. I was very fiercely independent about my songwriting process, about my experience up till then recording, which had been totally on my terms. Like I produced my EP. I wasn't even really sure what a producer did, but <laughs> I produced my EP, I guess, <laughs> if you could say that. <laughs> um, and so when I met him, and he's definitely somebody with really strong ideas uh, and a lot of really good ideas. And I felt that we had a little bit of like this battle of the wills where, where um, he would suggest hey, how about you bring that song to me and we can finish it together? And I'd be like, oh, no, I'm not doing that. Um, I don't need you to help me with my song. You know, there was some of that. And then I kind of bit by bit just let that go and and gave it a try. Like I remember I shared the first one was my song Twilight and I had written most of it, uh, the words that is. But it was a, a very different song. And I actually have voice memos of it that I like to sometimes go back and listen to, to remind myself <laughs> that it changed a lot. <laughs> um, and I brought it to him and he really, I think as like, he was an editor for me, like he helped me tighten it up and it got a lot shorter in a good way and like more to the point. And he also had a lot of musical ideas that just made it a more compelling song. And after that, it's like I had this recording from the beginning and I had this proof of what it got to. And I listened to both. And I remember being like, oh, OK, there was something really valuable about that <laughs> collaborative process. And after that, I was a lot more open to it. And I still, you know, I still maintain that I need, you know, some amount of privacy or solitude to kind of get ideas sometimes. But once I have an idea... I'm way more comfortable just trying the the co-writing process because it's you know it's it's really about saying yes and not always saying no and I think I was in a place of uh being a little defensive whereas now I have just more of a yes attitude or I try to cultivate that um mm. it's like improv uh and Freebo taught me this idea that you say yes and you don't say no but 
uh, in co-writing because it just kind of, it's like a dead end. And, um, and, and that's so for the band also, you know, I had never worked with a band before and I remember being like, wait, but what if I like panicked the night before and I was like, but what if like, they don't like me and, um, I don't like them. And what if it's terrible? And, and like, they're just a bunch of old guys. Like, who are these people? I was, I just like freaked out. And Freebo was like, well, yes, they are a bunch of old guys. Like, I will admit that. But he was like, do you like the way I play? And I was like, yeah, I do. And he's like, okay, then you're, you're definitely going to like the way they play. So just let's see what happens. And so that let's see what happens attitude took me into, honestly, a day that I will never forget because it was just transformatively cool and fun for me playing with them. And and this was a band of, of, uh, a drummer, John Molo, a keyboard player, JT Thomas, and a guitarist, Fuzzy Morse and Freebo on fretless bass. And they all have resumes seven miles long of people <laughs> they've played with. <laughs> and, um, they were just very kind and very giving and great listeners. And it was like, there was no ego. It was all about the song, you know, and all about supporting me. And once I got that, I, it's like, I went to this other level of musical consciousness and I like couldn't come down. It's like I lifted up above the earth and like saw myself <laughs> down there. <laughs> Your experience with misogyny when it comes to working with someone like Freebo, and I don't mean Freebo, and I don't mean the musicians that he hired for your record, but I wonder how you've experienced kind of weird sexism from those in the industry while working with him, or maybe like that hasn't happened at all, or have you ever worried that that kind of stuff would happen? Mm. I think that no female on earth is spared those experiences <laughs> i think they just come in degrees and different forms i've i've been i think really fortunate uh to to have been able to surround myself with men who i feel really support me in my independence and my desire to chart my own path so i've I've felt a certain amount of protection from those kinds of people. Like, uh, you know, Freebo has been, you know, when I'm, for example, I mean, when I'm on the road with him, I do feel uh, that there's like a little bit of a barrier that I can like, it's nice to have somebody else around where you're not just like solo woman out there in like the middle of nowhere. <laughs> I think it's, there's something nice about just having that camaraderie. Um, and yeah, I, I don't know. I think my negative experiences that there aren't big ones that come to mind. I, I think I've been able to, to hold my ground and I'm, I'm lucky to have been able to do that. Um, and I'm sure, you know, those, those things will come. It's, it's honestly, it's been a matter of just learning how to speak my truth. And there, there are people who are going to just 
totally give me the space to speak my truth. And there are people who haven't given me as much space and like kind of will be like they know better. That's that's the biggest thing that I've regularly encountered is just men in the music business knowing better than me, quote unquote, you know, about Mm -hmm. this or that. And I think it's just about getting to find my power where I can be like, no, I definitely know what I'm talking about. It's the same thing selling a $4,000 guitar. It's like the same practice and it, it does take strength and courage and it's not always easy, but I'm grateful for the, the good guys that are out there. And I think it's, uh, yeah, I'm, I feel lucky. You mentioned that um, solitude and also stillness are very important to you, that they provide a creative place. Um, I read this really lovely article about you on a blog called City Looks Pretty. It's just like lovely. Um, And I wanted to read something from that. It says, um, sometimes, Alice says, you just have to show up and see what happens. For Alice, her way of showing up is likely more than just playing guitar on a bar stool at open mic night in L.A. I like to imagine that at any given moment, showing up means she's taking in the Pacific Ocean waves and crafting a song in her head, channeling her childhood all the while. I just wanted to, I I love that, and I wanted to hear your reaction. No, I love that too. (laughs) Sometimes I... I have to laugh at myself a little bit because there's this image of me (laughs) that I feel like I just spend all my time like wandering barefoot among the trees and like camp and like letting little bits of (laughs) magic inspiration like fall onto my head. Um, And I am definitely not that mindful all the time, (laughs) just to be clear. But when I am at my best or when I can give myself the space is very often when an idea for a song or a certain phrase or a melody will come to me. Um, and I find that I really have to uh, create that space. I, it doesn't, um, I used to think that, you know, songs would just like hit you out of the sky, like as I just described, but I think you, you actually are, I really need to just be quiet and like sit and maybe it won't be what I expected it to be. Maybe it won't be uh, the deepest, most profound thing, but it might be just something really simple that if I was busy all the time and focusing on, because there's so many things we can focus on. And especially right now, you know, I can sit and stare at my computer and I can just be one thing after another with tasks and, um, for me, my creativity just, it needs a little little space to come mm-hmm. out. Yeah. yeah. Here's something interesting for the basic folk listeners is that um, Alice and I have never met each other, <laughs> but we have spent a significant amount of time on oh, yeah. Zoom, <laughs> troubleshooting, live streaming. And it's been cool to be able to get to know you in, in that way. And it yes. also um, made me wonder what your history of um, being able to ask for help, because for me, it's like, if I need help with something, I'm going to find the person that will help me do it. And I wondered if you had that experience, because I also saw you post a question on Facebook the other day asking about a- advice on QuickBooks. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and I wondered, like, <laughs> 
like how like what is your relationship to like asking those kind of questions to people and asking for help Mm. I am not afraid to ask for help I think that I will never know everything (laughs) so I damn well better be able to ask people who can help me and that's not always easy I think in my few years of of really doing this music thing full time I've had moments of feeling like I have to do everything myself and I've had moments of being more open and asking and definitely lately in the last couple of months since we entered this this new reality uh and we've all been so much more isolated I think I've I've really been able to ask more which has been a cool um silver lining of this time for me has just been connecting with people like you people other artists um on my roster my booking agency like Sav from the Accidentals and um the the guys from the End of America another band and and Heather May these are all artists um with the Fleming agency and we've been having weekly calls where every Thursday we all get together and talk about something and those have just been totally illuminating for me because it's like everybody here of all these 30 people, everyone knows something different. Everybody's studied some little element of this business or this craft that I, oh my gosh, I'm so lucky. I get to ask them because (laughs) they are nice people who want to share what they know. So yeah, I think, um, I think asking is is the key. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> to everything. <laughs> I want to hear about the next project. Um you went to Muscle Shoals. It did some recording at Fame Studios, the famous Fame Studios with Rick Rick Hall's legacy looming. Yeah. Um tell me about what's going on with that. Yeah, so I had this wonderful two days uh, down in Muscle Shoals, Alabama, last September, where uh, a friend of Freebo's, uh, an old friend of his named Will McFarlane, who played guitar in Bonnie Raitt's band for a number of years in the 70s, and Freebo and him toured the world together and recorded, and, and Will has lived with his family in Muscle Shoals for the last 30 years, and he's been on uh, countless sessions recorded at fame and all over the city and in, in different, different recording studios there. And so I expressed an interest, um, in seeing what it was like down there. And so Freebo and I got to go down and Will showed us around and, uh, it was just, we thought we looked at each other and we were like, we have to come back here. So we set it up for last September and we went down there and um, had had a couple days with a local drummer, this wonderful drummer, um, Freebo played the bass, Will played the guitar. Um, we had another old friend of Freebo's, Mark Jordan, um, who's a Nashville-based keyboard player. He was actually in Freebo's, very, their very first band in college um, in Philadelphia and in the 60s. So it's like people from all different parts of his life, which was cool. And then my good friend, uh, Jeff Fielder, who I had known in Seattle when I lived there. And he is just an incredible multi-instrumentalist guitarist. And he played on your record too? He Yeah, he's played on all of my recordings on my EP and, and on Visions as well. And Jeff happened to be in Nashville 
we were all there for our Americana Fest. Anyway, long story short, we basically kidnapped Jeff and brought him <laughs> to Muscle Shoals with us, which he was happy to do. And it just turned into this beautiful um, kind of coming together of people from, like I said, different parts of, of my life, different parts of Freebo's life. And historically, this just incredible musical history and this place mm. that has so much good juju. And uh, we were in this room and it was just it was amazing. And we recorded six tracks um, with no expectation of it being like the next record, which was actually six, kind of, six tracks in two days is a lot. It was like we were on fire. <laughs> <laughs> it was so cool. And um, it was just everybody was just feeling it. Everyone was so excited to be in that room. Um, you know, it was old hat for Will and the drummer. They were like, we come here all the time. But everybody else was like, just touching the walls being like oh my god <laughs> like mustang sally was recorded in this room yeah so um it was it was beautiful um and i left those sessions just being like oh obviously we have to come back so we've decided it was going to be in april of this year but obviously we've postponed it and so yeah my my next record is um you know the plan is to go back in september of this year hopefully and and Freebo will be producing it. And I'm just so excited about it. And honestly, now I feel like very happy that it got postponed because I've already written a couple of songs in the last month that I am very excited about that would mm. not have existed. So right. thank you. Thank you, pandemic. <laughs> Silver lining. <laughs> have, have you seen the documentary Muscle Shoals? I have. Yeah, a couple of oh, times. Man. It's, it's so, so good. good. Yeah. And just just knowing that that those people touched that hallowed ground, it's like it's like the pressure is too much, but it's also <laughs> it's like it's pressure, but it's not because it's just like, no, this is there's a, there's a, if you can get into the place of like you're here for a reason and you're meant to be here and this is good and you belong here, then it's incredibly inspiring. It's awesome. All right, Alice Howe, we're going to do something very fun, and you're going to love it. This has been fun all the way along. Well, hold on to your hat, because here comes the lightning round. Okay. Ready? First song you learned on the guitar. Oh, my God. What is it called? It's called Jack a Row. It's like that old traditional song um, that also the Grateful Dead did a version of. Oh, cool. Uh, <laughs> Batman or Superman? I don't really care. Wow. <laughs> I asked that. I think I asked that to Layla McCalla, and she was like, no, man. <laughs> That's very funny. Um, what, what's your karaoke song? Uh, Halo by Beyonce. Favorite radio station as a kid? Um, <laughs> wow, that's... That's heavy. I don't even remember, like, being aware of the radio when I was a kid. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> I'm sorry. You probably you probably would have liked Magic 106.7 because oh. it plays all the soft rock hits from the oh, 60s and 70s. Oh, my God. Probably, yes. Or, you know what? No. I, I had a weird love of the country station. It was 99.5 when I was little. I yep. loved, like, the old country dudes. WKLB? A, totally. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it was a it used to be a greater media station and now it's 102.5 yeah it's not the same no sorry i'm same. making this lightning round like the slowest lightning round of all time those are my favorite lightning <laughs> rounds 
Okay. Dogs or cats? Cats. What is your coffee order? Mmm. Mmm. Depends on the kind of coffee shop. If it's one of those, like, heady, heady shops, I'll take a pour over. And I'll put a little bit of half and half in it. But if it's just, like, your run-of-the-mill Starbucks, it would be, like, an almond milk latte. Right. <laughs> what is your favorite U.S. city? Oh. Oh, my God. I don't think I can choose that. I love Seattle. Seattle's right up there. Um, but my hometown, Boston, gets a shout-out, and so does L.A. All right. Uh, oh, so does Burlington, Vermont. Sorry, got to throw Vermont in there. What? Uh, <laughs> what's the first album you bought with your own money? <laughs> <laughs> this is going to make all of my answers sound like lies when I tell you. Can't wait. Um, it was definitely Destiny's Child album. <laughs> oh, man. And also your Halo, uh, Halo is your karaoke I song. I seem to have a bit of a Beyonce thing. I'm not afraid. You and, you and the rest of America. <laughs> first concert. I can't say it was the first, but I do remember seeing Richard Schindel at Club Passim and being very moved by that as wow. a tween. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. One of my, I, I think back on that, you know, and I've since been able to open for him and, and sing harmony with him on stage. And um, I always think back to seeing him at Passim when I was like, you know, 12 or 13 and being like, someday I hope that I can. And it's, I just love that. It's like, oh, it's full circle. <laughs> what was the last book you read? Ani DeFranco's memoir, which is incredible. And you should read if you haven't. What is your dream collaboration? Oh God. If I could ever, if I could just, mm. <laughs> <laughs> If I could open for Jackson Brown or sing backup vocals for him or just in any way maybe sing a duet with him, I would I would be able to die happy. Seems attainable. I'm working on it. Love it. <laughs> Beatles or Rolling Stones? Beatles. Morning person or night owl? Um night owl. Flying <laughs> Flying or invisibility? Ooh, definitely invisibility. Mm. And you also p selected cats, which is not usual. Uh, Star Trek or Star Wars? Again, that's an I don't care. I'm just not. I'm. You know, it's Lord of the Rings for me all the way. Ooh. That's <laughs> another question choice. I should put in here. Lord of the Rings or... Or Harry Potter, maybe. Harry, or Narnia. Oh, God, I love Narnia. Lord of the Rings... <laughs> Or Narnia. <laughs> Both. Both. Um, <laughs> where is the most beautiful place you've ever visited? Southern Spain, where I spent a semester in college. Cordoba, España. Do you speak Spanish? Si, claro. Wow. <laughs> Alice Howe, you have completed the lightning round. <laughs> you have answered all my invasive questions. That was deep, Cindy. Thank how you. and how's another another evening with how and how's uh i feel like we have something here we i think so take this show on the road whenever shows go back on the road yeah someday <laughs> <laughs> well thanks i really appreciate it it was nice to have you on thank you cindy it's great to be here 
Basic Folk is produced by Adam Corey this week. Laura McCarthy is also a producer on Basic Folk. Lindsay Myers is our business manager. Alex Stanton of Townspeople does our music. I'm Cindy Howes. Thank you so much for listening to Basic Folk. We're so happy to be part of the American Songwriter Podcast Network. You can find more information at their website, americansongwriter.com. And you can also find info, show notes, pretty, pretty pictures at my website, cindyhouse.net. You can sign up for my mailing list for info and pictures of Dottie the cat, who is still in her cat bag and still crying. We get one more cry? That was a silent cry. Oh, there we go. All right, I'll talk to you later. Bye. Bye.